All right, well, today we start the first week of our home series. I hope this is a blessing to you. I know that COVID-19 uh, and 2020 uh, have been hard. I know that um, many of you um, in your jobs, in your home, in your community, um, you've been going from place to place. Some of you have been shut into your home and trying to do, trying to have meetings over Zoom and stuff like this. And it just, it really discombobulated a, a lot of homes. A lot of marriages, a lot of relationships between parents and children and grandparents and things like this. And I want you to know um, that if you look around this room, everybody's been through this. And so you, you haven't suffered alone. It has been an interesting, to say the least, last 365 days. And it's, it continues to be a challenge. But I hope that, that this series encourages you as we look at what it what it means to, to have a Christian home. Now, on the face of it, when we talk about this, this idea of being holy, of a holy environment, a holy home, the word holy today has a negative connotation. Whether, whether we like it or not. And even though God's word says that our homes, that your home should be a holy place, that your family should be a holy unit, um, sometimes when we hear that word holy today, we, we, we bristle against it. Um, if somebody's acting holier than thou, it's a negative thing, right? We almost equate that to hypocrisy. They're trying to, they're acting like they're somebody that they're not. They're comparing themselves to other people. Um, but holy in scripture doesn't mean better. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't reflect who we are in our flesh or or, or inside, it reflects, it reflects our attitude toward God. That's what it reflects. And so when we see this word holy in Scripture, it means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated. It means to be dedicated. Uh, we've done uh, child dedications here in our church. I've done them many times in my ministry where parents say to their church body, they say, we want our home to be a holy place. And we believe that that begins when we present our children not to be baptized at a young age before they can give a reason for why they believe, but to present them to the church, to ask the church to hold us accountable because we're trying to raise this child or these children in a holy atmosphere. We want our home to be different. And if our home is going to be different and we're going to live by God's word, we're going to need your help. We're going to need you to pray for us. We're going to need you to hold us accountable. We're going to need you to speak into our lives and the lives of our children, the lives of our spouse. And so Christians will do that. They will dedicate their children. They will dedicate their homes. They will consecrate their home. They will ask someone to come. I've been asked to, to come to people's homes that they, that they just bought and say, would, Pastor, would you pray? Would you bring some people from the church and come and pray over our home because we want to consecrate this home to the Lord. And so we do. We pray. And we ask that the Lord would bless a home. That's what it means to have a holy home. 
a set-apart home, a consecrated home. What does it mean for our home to be set apart, to be consecrated for God? Now, you may be here this morning and you're single. You may be married. You may be married with children. You may be married with young children, older children. You may be empty nesters. You may be retirees. But every person lives in a home and is part of making a home. And so I believe this message this morning applies to everybody. I want to remind you before we jump into some of our main texts this morning, I want to remind you of something we covered in our church just a few weeks ago in the book of Romans. This will be familiar to you probably. This is Romans chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul talks about believers who have been born again through faith in Christ and he says to them, he, he encourages them and he challenges them to think of their bodies in a new way. To think of their physical bodies in a different way than they've ever thought about their physical bodies. So follow along with me really quick. This is in Romans chapter 6 and I'm going to read verse 12 and 13. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. The Bible says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul says there's a new way to think of your human body, of your physical body. Now I want you to notice a few things that he says here. He says in verse 13, do not go on presenting your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. He's saying this is the way you used to live. You used to live by presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. He's saying, don't do that anymore. Be holy. Be set apart. Instead, take your body and present the members of your body as instruments to God for righteousness, not for unrighteousness. So now no longer do you look around you in the culture and say, well, this man over here, he's, he's doing this with his body. Matter of fact, the majority of the men and women or maybe teenagers out there are doing this with their bodies, so it's okay for me to do that. It's acceptable for me to do that. Nothing wrong with it. Paul says you're looking at it the wrong way. You don't present your members to the culture or to sin. You present your members to God, right? Because something's changed in your life. Now you belong to Christ. He says do not go on. And then the second thing, because, because he says, look, you're going to be breaking these repetitive habits in Christ. In Christ, you will not be doing the same things. And then he says, secondly, but present yourselves. This means living a holy life has to be, listen, proactive and intentional. Proactive and intentional. It, it doesn't just happen. I... So many times we think as Christians that, man, if, we're, if we really have the Lord living within us, then things are just going to happen automatically, right? If we're really filled with the Spirit, these things are just going to happen. 
But Paul says you have to be intentional and proactive. He says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, thirdly, as instruments. So what is he saying here? He's saying living holy, living a holy life means you're going to be breaking some bad habits. Get ready for it. Number two, you're going to have to live proactively and intentionally. It won't happen accidentally. So coming to church on Sunday and hoping other people's holiness rubs off on you in some way, right? Have you guys seen the little meme of the, of the kid in China who's he's in a schoolroom and all, he's sitting there at the desk and all of his classmates are around him and they all have their books open and he's got his hands like this. Has anybody seen this? And he, he goes like this. He's taking the knowledge from the, from the book. And don't you wish learning was like that? That we could just do that with God's word? We could just do this and we'd be... It's not, it's not learning by osmosis. It doesn't rub off. It's, it has to be intentional. It has to be purposeful. And then holiness means that we, we become useful to God for his purposes. That is that... That the way God wants to use you is different than the way you used to live before you came to Christ. God wants to not just redeem your soul from hell. He wants to redeem your life today. He wants to use you in new ways you've, ever, you've, you've never imagined. So he uses this term instruments. Instruments. When I was a kid, I played with G.I. Joes. It's my confession for the morning. I had G.I. Joes. My brothers had G.I. Joes. And whenever it was our birthday or it was Christmas, we would ask for some new G.I. Joes. And um, we had this little place out on the side of our house. And it was kind of an area of the yard that never got any grass to grow. So it was always just kind of dirt and it was kind of clay. And uh, we got really creative one summer. And we started digging these holes like you know, bunkers and stuff like that. Just these massive, this massive series of tunnels underground. And you know what we found? You know what we discovered was the best way to dig those tunnels? My mom's butter knives. From her cutlery set, from our family's cutlery set. So over a, over a period of time, my mom is like, where are my Oneida or whatever they're called knives? They were the real nice ones with the flowers at the bottom and the top and everything. She started discovering her knives were disappearing. And when she found out what they were being used for, she was not a happy camper. Because we didn't just dig holes with them. We would lose them. We'd misplace them. It's not what they were for. Even though they did the, the job really well that we intended them for. They were not for little boys digging trenches. There are other tools for that. They belong on a plate Putting food in your mouth. Cutting the food that you're going to put in your mouth. Not in the dirt. And that's what Paul's saying about you and me living holy lives. There are things that you used to give your physical body to in the world that God intends for you not to do that anymore. He wants to use you as an instrument of his righteousness. So I just wanted to share that before we jump into the main scripture passages here. But the first one I want to take you to is 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
verses 13 through 21. And one of these verses, maybe two of them, are going to be on your screen. So you can kind of see the, the emphasis here. Verses 15 and 16. But I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage here. Verses 13 through 21. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. He's talking to Christians. Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We get a glimpse here in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 21, of what it means to be holy. And, and he quotes the Old Testament in Leviticus here, if you notice. He says, because it is written in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that. God expects us to be set apart and holy for his purposes because he is holy. That means there's no one else like him. No one like our God. The one true holy God. But notice what he says here about being holy. What does it mean for the Christian? The first thing we notice here is in verse 13, being ready. Being awake. Being sober. Keep your minds sober. There are so many things in life that make us want to dull the pain, right? You just want to get through the day because the life is so difficult sometimes. And we don't want to be sober of mind. We just want to do whatever is possible to dull the pain of what we're going through. But the Bible says that if you're a Christian, living a holy life set apart means that you live soberly in the world, awaiting the second coming of Christ, that he's coming again. And though the people all around you don't live soberly, you as a Christian and your home should be a place of sobriety, of readiness. The second thing is obedience. Being holy means to be obedient. Looking forward to the hope. Verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You're no longer ignorant. You know what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. You know that God gave his only son to die in your place for your sins, to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself, to save you from your sins. 
So no longer looking back, no longer becoming entangled in all the things of the world and the culture that you used to be entangled in, the things that really satisfied you. But no, looking forward, looking forward to what all that you have in Christ. So spiritually sober, number two, obedient. Number three, reverent. Being holy means to be reverent in this passage. He says, live in fear. Verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. Fear, reverence, giving God the weight of glory that he deserves. And then finally, being holy means being convicted. Being convicted, feeling the weight, being gripped by the gravity of Christ's work on a regular basis. And folks, let me tell you, that means you have to keep coming back to the well of Scripture and the Gospel to be reminded of what Jesus has done for you and for me. So in 1 Peter 1, 13-21, Peter the Apostle shows us what it, li- what it means to live a holy life and what it means to have a home that is holy, set apart, sanctified, consecrated. But remember that verse where he says, you are to be holy because I am holy. How is it that God is holy? How has he shown us his holiness? Rewind back to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to discover a few things here as well. This is a passage of scripture that talks about how different God is. How God in Christ stands alone. There's no other religion. There's no other faith. Where God... descends, condescends, and gives of himself so that sinful mankind could be made right. Paul asks this question in Romans, in his letter to the Romans. He says in verse 33, Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is really important. These three prepositional phrases that are used in verse 36. Because as we think about a holy and set apart home, we discover something from what God says about himself here and about Christ. And that is that a holy home is one that appropriates these three prepositional phrases that we see in verse 36. Under the sovereignty of God. A holy home is one that appropriates these three prepositional phrases under the sovereignty of God. That's what it means to be set apart. 
If you go back to the Old Testament, we see that God says to his people in Leviticus, you are to be holy. Why? Because your God is holy. And in your behavior and the way that you live and the way that you make your home and the way that you interrelate with other people in the body distinguishes yourself from the surrounding culture so that the surrounding culture sees that there's something to this God that we worship that is unlike any other. From Him. What does that mean? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. From Him. From God. When we think of the Christian home in terms of all things being from Him. The Christian home is a place of obedient stewardship where we realize that everything that we have, our stuff, our people, every bit of our home comes from Him. Those relationships are precious. Those conversations that happen in those four walls are precious. The time that we spend with one another is precious. Why? Because it all comes from God. It all comes from Him. A Christian home is where believers step up in stewardship. It's one where we take responsibility for all the things that God has given us. Not just the stuff and not just the people, but the conversations. If we rewind all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the very first man, the very first woman, Adam and Eve, They decide to sin against God. And when God confronts them, he he comes to Adam. Why? Because Adam was created first and Adam was given the responsibility to lead his family. Paul explains this a little bit more in Galatians chapter 3 or 2. 1 Timothy 3 maybe. But you know what Adam says to God? When God says, what have you done? He said, it's that woman you gave to me. She gave the fruit to me and I ate of it. Adam was unwilling to take ownership. And he was unwilling to see his family and his relationship to his wife, who was supposed to be his helpmeet. He failed to see that as a stewardship from God. He didn't feel the weight of it. And so, when he sinned against God, he started shifting blame. He started putting blame on God. He started accusing God. You know what the word, the name Satan means? Accuser. Accuser, destroyer. From the very beginning, that's what the enemy of God, that's what God's arch enemy Satan is always doing. He's always accusing God of being unfair And he's always accusing God's people. We have to take personal responsibility, number one. Number two, we have to teach. We have to teach one another in our home. We go back to Genesis again. In Genesis chapter 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac Now, Abraham was a nobody who God decided to make into a somebody. 
He was in his 70s. God called him out of his homeland, a place where he had established a good name, a place where he owned a lot of stuff. Does anybody else have, you just have a place in your home where it's like all your stuff. You don't want anybody else moving stuff. Imagine, you've invested all that time in your family and everybody's there in your hometown and God comes to you and says, I want you to leave all this. Okay. What's the plan? I'm not going to show you yet. I just want you to go that way. And I'll tell you when you get to the place that I'm showing you. That's what God did with Abraham. He made him a promise. If you'll go to the place where I'm showing you, I will multiply your seed. He and his wife were unable to have children. And God says, if you go, I will multiply you. I will bless all the nations of this world through you and through your seed, through your children. The Bible says that Abraham went and there was no Ten Commandments. There was no law of God. There was no Ark of the Covenant being carried around in the wilderness. It was Abraham and his family. And that was it. This was a man and his wife and some other family members who were following God and listening to his voice. But over time, God delivered on his promise. Sarah, Abraham's wife, had a child. They named him Isaac. And over time, we come to chapter 22, and Abraham is being told by God... The one who made the promise, he says to, his, to Abraham, he says, Take your son, Isaac, your only son, the son that you love. Take him up to this mountain and sacrifice him there. Offer him to me as an offering. And so in Genesis 22, the Bible says it came about after these things. God tested Abraham. He takes him out tells him to go up to the mountain. Abraham, verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. That's a sermon in and of itself. When God speaks and asks you to do something that you think is completely nuts and crazy, how do you respond? Mm, I'm going to pray about this a little bit. I'm going to ask my Christian friend. I'm gonna, the Bible says, Abraham heard God's voice. He got up early in the morning early he saddled up his donkey he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him on the third day Abraham raised his eyes saw the place from a distance he said to his young men stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and will worship and return to you and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took his hand in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Now listen to this in verse 7. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. I want you to notice something. Where and when did Isaac become aware that what they were about to do was to worship the Lord. How did he learn that? Why is Isaac even asking the question, hey, wait a minute, Dad, I see we have the wood, we have the fire, we have all these things, but there's something missing. Why would Isaac know that? 
because his father devoutly worshipped the one true and holy God. And he taught his son how to worship the one true holy God because Abraham had a household that was holy and set apart. It wasn't just Abraham's private faith that he didn't really share with his family. No, he led his family so that when his son is going up to the mountain, his son is saying, Dad, there's something missing from our worship. Our worship's not right. What's not right about this? We have to teach We have to teach those in our home. That's what makes it a holy place. Because we're teaching each other the things of God. The second part. From him and through him. In Genesis 22.8, just the, the next verse that we read about Abraham, look at his statement there. He says... God will provide for himself the burnt offering. When we look at Paul's statement in Romans 11 where he says, all things are from him and through him and to him. What he means by saying all things are through Christ is he's saying what a believer can expect in their life when the Holy Spirit comes and lives with inside of you, lives within you, God can do anything. Amen? To have a Christian home means that, that you believe in your home that there's, there's nothing beyond our God's ability. He can do anything. So Abraham packs everything up, heads up the mountain. Why? Because of his faith in God. He's looking at his son Isaac. He's saying, you're a miracle. We didn't think you were possible. We doubted God. And he showed us that he can do anything. And so I'm convinced now that if I'm just obedient to do what God calls me to do, even in the things that are very, very difficult, on the face of it, I know he's a God who can and will provide according to his will. Folks, listen, I know there are things that happen in your home and in my home and things that we face that we think are insurmountable, that we cannot get through. Listen, Christian. In Christ, all things are possible in your home. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stop. A holy home is one where there's faith. Where there's faith, where there's real, authentic faith. Faith. It's, it's not just a place that you walk into and you, you notice Hobby Lobby stuff hanging on the wall and Thomas Kincaid paintings everywhere, you know? Not that there's anything wrong with that. But you know what I'm talking about. You walk into a home and you see verses on the wall. You go, oh, these people must be Christians. This must be a Christian home. This is a holy place. There are crosses. How many of you have a cross wall? We have, a cross, we have crosses all over our house. My sister-in-law has multiple cross walls where she collects crosses and you can just walk into a room and just crosses all over the house, which is great. But man, I hope that when we see the cross on our wall, we're reminded, we're reminded that, that we should live a crucified life following Jesus and that I'm not the most important person in my home. It doesn't all revolve around me. 
Emily's grandmother, who went to be with the Lord a couple years ago. We call her Mama Dietz. She had uh, precious moments stuff. Anybody know the precious moments stuff? She had this stuff all over her house. And she and her husband, Emily's grandfather, who's also in heaven with the Lord today, they had a little Christian bookstore that they built in their garage. And so church members and people in their neighborhood would come by. So they had a lot of stuff when they closed their business and they would give to us. And we have a lot of precious moment stuff in boxes. And She had one in her bathroom, the hall bathroom, that always made me laugh. It was a little precious moment sign and it said, Make a joyful noise. And so as you're sitting there in the bathroom, there's a scripture verse. We used to always joke around about that. But every time I would see her, if it had been a long time, whether it was a long time or not, she would say to me, she would say to all of us, kids, grandkids, everybody, she had a lot of grandkids. She would say, I pray for you by name every night. And that means a lot. And there are times in our life as we look back and we go, man, look at how God got us through. And every time she would say to us when we saw her, I pray for you by name every night. And I go, I know. (laughs) I feel it. But that's what made her home, a Christian home. Not the stuff on the wall. But it's the conversations with God that are happening every day. Through him. From him. Through him. And then finally, to him are all things. The Christian home is a place where every inch is leveraged for God's glory. It's a place of inexhaustible worship. That means that there's nothing, there's nothing in your home. There's no relationship. There's, there's no material thing. There's no time in your home that is not leveraged for God. Stewarded to God in worship. It means that there's no, there's no category, there's no part of our home life or any relationship where we say, well, that's not going to be consecrated to God. That's an area that God can't have. That's mine. Lord, you can have everything else, but you can't have this part of my life. You can't have this part of my home. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, we read about Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And in this passage, in this part of the story, Saul is going into battle. And he's told by the prophet Samuel, that is, he's told by God, to utterly destroy everything that the opposing king has. In 1 Samuel 15.3, he says, utterly destroy everything he has. See, God knows our hearts. He knows that we want to carve out areas where we can just kind of put some of our stuff, keep it away from him where he doesn't know it exists. That's what Saul does. Saul goes into battle. God gives Saul and the 
army of Israel the victory. And the Bible says in verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag, that was the foreign king, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, verse 10 says, saying, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Later on, the Bible says, Samuel goes to Saul in verse 13, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And the lowing of oxen which I hear. And Saul said, They, you see that again? Accusations, just like, just like Adam, that woman you gave me, God. Saul doesn't take ownership. He says, They have brought them with the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. So Saul disobeys the commandment of the Lord. He says, I'll give, all, I'll give God all the, all the bad stuff. Right? Like having a garage sale. <laughs> God, you can have all this stuff. We've used it. Half of it's broken. Take it. Take it all. Right? It's not what God is asking Saul for. It's not what he's commanding Saul to give. Saul gives his leftovers God doesn't let him get away with it. He confronts him through the prophet Samuel. Samuel reminds Saul, Saul, remember back before you were anything? You were a nobody. You were a nothing. God made you all that you are right now. Remember that? Why then, he says in verse 19, did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul says, no, I, I did obey, verse 20 says. No, I did what God told me to do, but it was the people. The, the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen and the choicest things devoted to destruction. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. Our culture, like the people in Israel under Saul, places immense pressure upon Christians to operate according to its standards. But God calls us to listen to his voice and give him everything. Our worship must be inexhaustible. Abraham Kuyper once wrote, there's not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry, mine. Everything you have, every relationship under your roof, every item that you have is from him and through him and to him. That's what it means. To have a holy home. It doesn't, it doesn't mean having a home full of a bunch of self-righteous people. No. 
It's a set-apart home. God's adversary, Satan, as we mentioned earlier, does not like this sentiment at all. He accuses God of being selfish. He wants things for himself that God has no right or access to. Some people feel the same way, but not Christians. Those whose lives have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus on the cross understand the great lengths to which God has gone in order to make us clean and forgiven. He gave his only son, his only begotten son for us. The Bible says he demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It also says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, that makes all the difference. The Christian home is different. If you drive around Maricopa, all of which, pretty much, is no older than 2003. Our home was built in 2006. I think most of the homes in Maricopa were built around 2006. This past year, there were over 2,000 residential building permits pulled again. It's been on a steady increase since about 2013. It's incredible. But one of the things that you don't see on the face of it in Maricopa is what happens within the four walls of our new cookie-cutter, beautiful little homes that we buy at a fraction of the price as everybody else in the valley. And so when you drive through Maricopa, everything looks neat as a pen. HOAs, keeping everything nice. Gated communities. Nice little front yards. Little three-car garages. Pools. But I know, I know, I know that there are so many things happening within the four walls of the neighbors who live on the street that, that we live on. My neighborhood needs prayer. Our home is different. The floor plan might be the same as everybody else's. But in a Christian home, we operate differently. We look at each other differently. We have to. Because we, we learn the way of the cross. We learn the way of Christ. We live in humility. We strive to love one another and forgive one another. Things we're going to be learning about a lot this week. Two houses down or three houses down from us, a man was arrested last year. Child pornographer. Had like 100,000 rounds of ammunition. I can't, tell, I can't even remember how many guns were found in this house. In my neighborhood. Three houses down. I can tell you story after story of broken homes on my street and people that I talk to all the time. Our city needs Jesus. And our homes need more of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be getting into this week. The Christian home is different. It is to be set apart for God. It is a place of obedient stewardship, 
of demonstrable faith and inexhaustible worship. Are you willing to take a close look at your home today? What is the Lord telling you to do today? Are there areas where you especially need his help today in your home? That you would just confess to him this morning and say, Lord, I want my home to be different. I want my home to be a Christian home. Will you confess that to him today as we pray? Would you ask him to help you? Say, Lord, do your work. Maybe it's in your relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's your relationship with your children. Maybe it's just certain things that you recognize the Lord speaks to you today through his word that you realize this morning you just need to come to him in prayer and say, Lord, I confess this. I offer it to you. Would you speak to me? He hears you when you pray. And he'll never give up on you. I'm going to close this in prayer this morning. Would you stand with me? I look forward to seeing you here next week. As we continue our series and learn more about the home that God wants us to have. Today it was about holiness. We're going to be looking at what it means to have a humble and forgiving home. What it means to have a happy home. Several other things this month that I think that you're going to be blessed by. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, Father, for your son Jesus who died for us in our place. Father, we need your help. We know that you have a plan, a desire, a design for our homes. Oh, but God, we're, we're still here on this side of heaven and we live in the flesh and we fail and we have all kinds of worldly desires that we just need to crucify and, and lay at your feet this morning. God, maybe we need in our desire for a holy home, maybe there's something we need to place it your feet on the altar today and just say, this is something I need to give up. I need to let this go. I've been holding on to it and it's not making my home holy. It's something maybe that we've brought from our life in sin that we just never checked at the door. God, I pray that we would lay that at your feet today. Father, maybe it's a relationship that needs healing. Father, I pray that in our earnest desire to see healing, Father, that you would show us how that happens through forgiveness and humility and patience. Father, we, we want no place in our home to just be for ourselves. Lord, let us worship you in spirit and in truth with all the things that you've blessed us with, all the relationships that you've given to us. Father, if we need to ask forgiveness from someone in our family, let us do it today. Father, if we need to amputate something, some habit, something that, that we continue to do that does not distinguish our home and our relationships from the culture, Lord, would you bring it to our minds today and let us sacrifice it today knowing that everything that you give us is good and that Lord we will never be in want of anything when we seek first your face and your kingdom 
So, Father, let it be today as we confess to you, Father, as we ask you for your help. Lord, would you help us? And we look forward to all that you're going to do through your Son, Jesus, and your Holy Spirit. 